1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 161 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Pinello, pinch hitting for George Redis. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own, not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any insensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So let's face it, everybody, every cybersecurity executive has to express the value of security activities in terms of measurable and defined outcomes based on risk reduction. This requires a rich understanding of the threat environment, clear appreciation for the concept of criticality, and an awareness of the potential impact of cyber attacks from an operational business standpoint. Thank goodness we had last, last week, we had Senior Vice President of Global Intelligence of Recorded Future, Levi Gundert, on episode 160 of Task Force 7 Radio to give us a readout on his new book. The risk business: What CISOs need to know about risk-based cybersecurity. Levi also discussed the case for risk-based cybersecurity, the risk that risk is the language of business, threat-driven versus compliance-driven versus risk-driven security programs. All that and much, much more in episode number one hundred and sixty of Task Force Seven Radio. In case you missed it, don't sweat it. We're everywhere, folks. We're on twelve different playback mediums, so check us out. That's the risk business: What CISOs need to know about risk-based security on. Last week's episode of one, number 160 at Task Force 7 Radio. So I'm super pumped. we got another great guest for you tonight. We have the principal head of cybersecurity and risk management solutions at Grobstein Teble LLP, Mr. Eric Rasmussen. Eric Rasmussen is a principal uh, at, at Grobstein Teeple and is the head of their cybersecurity and risk management solutions practice. He's an active attorney in Washington State and has almost 15 years of experience in cybersecurity and in law enforcement. Eric is an internationally recognized speaker, including RSA and ACES. He's been quoted in numerous media publications to include the Associated Press, Law360, Newsweek, and USA Today. Prior to joining GTLOP, Eric was Managing Director at Kroll Advisory Solutions, where he led the payment card industry regulatory forensic investigations business line. He's also been an executive, a cybersecurity executive at Visa and FIS Global. Eric spent nine years as a Secret Service agent based in Seattle, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C., He's a div- seasoned forensic investigator and has been involved in some really amazing cases, most specifically the Flycracker case, and he's also supported the Protective Intelligence of the President of the United States. Eric is an advisory board member of Flashpoint Partners, been on the show, um, and uh, as a certified member of ISC2, and is a member of the Washington State Bar-, Bar Association. And what I love about Eric is that prior to his law enforcement career, he was also a deputy prosecuting attorney in Washington. Folks, it's my pleasure to bring on the show the principal, head of cybersecurity and risk management solutions at Grumpstein Teeple LLP, Mr. Eric Rasmussen. Eric, welcome to Task Force Seven Radio, buddy.
2: Thank you, Andy. How are you, my friend?
1: It's been a while. I know, man. Look, I'm doing great. You got you and I have worked together for so long. It's been, you know, number of kids ago since we hung out, unfortunately. Uh can't wait to get the when the next year, when COVID clears up, we can get together again, brother. But uh you know, look, we, we've shared some fun times over the years. We've watched each other's careers grow. Um, I love bringing people on the show who are, have, have a really interesting journey. And, and, you know, one of the things we do on TF7 Radio is to try to make sure that everybody knows that there's something for everybody in our industry. And man, you, you know, you started out as a lawyer and I want to, I want to get a little bit of time with you today to kind of talk about your career path. And uh, then we'll get into some of the fun cases you work, but The um, why did you start as an attorney first?
2: Yeah, no, that was a production in and of itself, because I'm I come from a family of educators, uh, teachers, Ph.D.s, professors. And I knew after college I didn't want to do what they were doing. And it wasn't anything disrespectful, but I wanted to, to create my own path. And I knew that I was going to do something that was public service. I was always interested in public service. I wasn't sure where that was gonna be, uh, but at some point in high school, between high school and college, I was interested in federal law enforcement. So I knew that going to law school was a really, really good chance uh, to increase my competitiveness. And then of course, <laughs> to add insult to injury in terms of the divergence from my parents, you know, my parents went to Berkeley in the sixties and I, I told them this and I had nothing but support. So I knew that law school was a great way to just build on that platform. And um, in the course of that, I learned about being a prosecutor. I was an intern at the prosecutor's office up in Tacoma, and they offered me a full-time job after, and I was still actually in the process of applying to different federal law enforcement and intelligence community positions, and so I spent a couple of years doing that, and then I would I would tell anybody now, too, that had gone to law school to at least take a bar in one state because you know you, you go through a lot of trials and tribulations in law school, and even if you're not gonna ultimately become an attorney, you need to try that for a while. It's sort of sort of that return on the investment. And so that's how I ended up there. And then, and then after I was uh, hired on as a Secret Service agent in 2004, I, uh, I you know, kept that active bar membership for, that's, that's paid multiple dividends now as a consultant and a private sector guy for cyber.
1: And I used to remember we come in from ops and, and you'd be able to bang out <clears throat> all sorts of, you know, legal documents really quick.
2: <laughs> like, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent. Excellent point. Uh, I, I, if we we're going to jump into sort of that skill set, that has definitely helped in the report writing phase to be able to do some of that stuff. It's been very, very beneficial to me, and it's really a work capacity thing. As you know, Andy, from from now, of course, is your role as your roles at a CISO and and even then as an agent, especially in headquarters, there's actually you know running and gunning is is such a small part of of that world. You, you have to, you have to paper everything, right? Because you're doing so many monumental things in our instance, coordinating international arrests in four different countries, things like that require backstopping. And that's where a lot of the policy and the legal background, uh, you know, has really helped me and, and helped me quite a bit. You know, I think in the, in sort of the lost in translation game that you and I have to deal with, especially dealing with international law enforcement and all the constructs of international affairs, very, very uh, valuable skill set to have.
1: So, man, you, you know, you were like me. You started out, you know, kind of on the street when we got into, you know, into the Secret Service. But how did you know? Give me your path as to how you got into cyber, and then you know, why did you ultimately choose to you know have a career in cyber?
2: Great question. Yeah, I was a, I was a history major in college, so it was not. I was like you, right? I think you went to a small liberal arts school like I did, maybe, or I think you might have gone to a Catholic mm-hmm. school. And I was I was just Uh, not trained as a computer scientist. I wasn't a programmer. And for me, I went, (laughs) it was more happenstance. I was in Seattle at the Seattle field office for the Secret Service at the time. And our uh, supervisor, a former Marine Corps uh, flight navigator was walking down the halls looking for some training options in Los Angeles. And a lot of the guys, uh, it was was around, I think the holidays even. And a lot of guys in Los Angeles are not from LA. And a lot of guys in Seattle don't ever want to go to L.A. And I'm from L.A. and I wanted to go to L.A. So I just put my hand up to start some basic uh, computer investigations training in um, in 2005 or I think it was or 2006. And that began the path I'm at now to to work in cybersecurity. It was, it was sort of serendipitous, to be honest.
1: Yeah, it's funny. We, we had Levi Gundert on the show last week. And, uh, man, it was funny. The three of us used to do a lot of work together. I was kind of oh. that advisor from a how do we make <clears throat> really technical people work on the street. Levi was that's, hanging out, you know, really cool ops and you were like helping manage That's right.
2: Yeah. Problems. Because you were you were a yeah. forensics agent at the time. And yeah. we were we were we were new to the job. You'd been on a couple more years. Levi and I actually went went through training around the same time. So we've known each other as long as you know the day as long as 15, 16 years. And he sat next to me in that in the in the pit back there, you know, in that office. And that's right. Um, you 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 learn about cyber uh, it's weird, right? You, you probably have talked about it a lot with your guests, but cyber as a law enforcement agent is, is still an investigation first and then a technical thing second, right? You're still trying to document stuff to get people arrested and prosecuted. And that's maybe why it's been so successful for me is having that legal background and that prosecutor background that put me in the mindset to first go after the information to help move the case along um, because you've probably learned that getting bogged down in a lot of the technical stuff in cybersecurity and information security can kind of slow progress, especially when you're an executive having to make command decisions.
1: I mean, it's such a good observation, right? It's such a good point. It, it, it's there's still a process, an investigative process, and the technology obviously is just a part of that, you know, process. And obviously, you know, the technology is just a way, another way for for criminals to facilitate crime. And obviously, it's a huge business, and uh, you know, are being impacted every day by it. What has been the kind of biggest lesson you've seen now being in your seat uh, running cybersecurity risk management, you know, at, at a firm as a consultant compared to when you were on the, you know, law enforcement side?
2: Two primary observations. Number one is tied to how you started the radio show, which was speaking in risk management language. Levi's book could not be more timely right now because... So many of the people we talk to now at the highest levels of our client firms, or in your case at your company, even if they have technical resources or they have technical background, when they have to make a decision, a budget decision or just some sort of decision that's gonna affect the whole company, the decisions have to be broken down into the simplest terms possible. And talking about IP addresses and the OSI stack and memory analysis, all that stuff is just lost. So you have to change the terminology. So that's something that I've learned how to do over the last seven years since I've left the government is speak a different dialect or a different language where you can take those security principles and translate it into a different form of risk. And then the second thing that I've learned is that my focus and your focus to attribute a tax to people, to reach out and grab those people, arrest those people, prosecute those people, that sometimes is something that the client does not care anything about because of the reasons we care. They just diverge from the reasons they care. The person has hacked into the company. The person has caused financial damage to the company. That is what needs to be repaired, not whether or not the bad guy gets arrested. And sometimes I've learned my background has allowed that to make a really, really nice transition where we focus on it because of who you know and I know in law enforcement and the government. We can take that off their shoulders and go help funnel that information to the government. So even if the client doesn't care, the government will get the information in the proper way it gets it. And then they can learn another lesson that I've learned, which is straight out of our criminal handbook which is you can't you can't be victimized through a hack and then not care because somebody else will get victimized by the same actor or the same group and if you don't share that information if you're not somebody that's going to help your industry better protect itself then you're you're sometimes as much a part of the problem as you are the solution and those are those are lessons that i've learned i think
1: yeah there's definitely that good corporate citizenship right that ties to we're all part of the same ecosystem right and and You you wouldn't, you know, someone robbed, you know, your house, you know, you wouldn't tell your neighbors like, Hey, don't be on the lookout for, what's
2: the first thing you do? You go on your, your app, right? Your neighborhood app and you tell everybody what's happened. So they're aware of it, right? That's the same idea. You don't have to tell people all the details, but you get them, you get their hackles up. So they're prepared to protect themselves. And that's something a lot of, a lot of industry Titans don't understand still. And it's sometimes born out of their competitive nature to want to be a better business than the other business. But now, you know, with the regulatory environment we have, it, it doesn't really even matter anymore. It, most of this stuff requires mandatory obligations to notify certain entities. And that makes that sharing that much easier.
1: Yeah, man, I, I remember when we were going through the Albert Gonzalez case. And, uh, and we'll, we'll, I'll share this with you and then we'll go to the break. But the, the judge at sentencing said, I couldn't imagine imagine a publicly traded company in the United States not telling its shareholders or its customers that their data was at risk. Right. And it's just, uh, yeah.
2: And you see that you see the, the, the other side of that now with say the Uber case, right. And what's happening with all the former executives at Uber who failed to disclose and and, and not talking about the actual merits of, or the truthfulness of the claims, but just look at the mechanics, which is some of those people first lost their jobs then they were investigated by regulators and now are being criminally charged by the Department of Justice for failing to act or acting in a criminal manner, which is is going to that point of you need to share. Now, why all that happens and how a company is constructed in the org chart, that, that leads to all sorts of other decisions. But the point is the same, which is we are in the middle as those trusted advisors to tell, excuse me, to advise our clients and our constituents how best to navigate through those shark infested waters, because you and I know sitting in Moscow or sitting in Baku, Azerbaijan, or sitting in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, in those hot spots that are geopolitical nightmares for the US government, you and I and the right kinds of trained people can sit down in those rooms and still get stuff accomplished because of almost like a weird form of like
1: cyber diplomacy. And <laughs> is it behind the scenes like yeah
2: it's not. it's, 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 yeah. it's a lot more subtle and, and make no mistake about it right our, our world experience has taught us that the countries that we normally trust won't help us and the countries that we don't trust will help us and that's where if you haven't lived that we are uh, we're in a unique position to share that knowledge uh, as a part of our experience in our job duties.
1: Yeah, man, I can't wait. I got so many more questions for you. But all right, folks, we got to transition to a commercial break. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't get to, forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram. at searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at TF7. That's with the number seven, folks, radio.com. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and we're we'll right back with principal, head of cybersecurity and risk management solutions at Grobstein Teeple LLP, Eric Rasmussen. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our
4: timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization And the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet. S I N E T.
5: In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust trust x analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity for more information about x analytics visit our website today at x-analytics.com that's x-analytics.com x analytics setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management
0: You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at TaskForce7Radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, Radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back
1: to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with Principal, Head of Cybersecurity and Risk Management Solutions at Grobstein Thievel LLP, Eric Rasmussen. Eric, I'm always fascinated for people that were in our role in in the government and then have had success in the private sector. Um, Obviously, the success is coming now, but there's always that rocky start, I feel like, when I talk to folks. I want to get your take on... You know, why did you transition to the private sector, and kind of what worked for you to make the transition successful?
2: For me, I think it really helped that I was going into a place where I already knew some of the people there, and that that is a direct reference. to My first position outside the government was FIS Global, the massive multinational payment processor. Uh, For those of the folks listening, that people. Sort of like with Andy, where where Andy works now, FIS Global offers so many financial technology backed-in solutions to the banking network. It's unbelievable if you knew what FIS Global does. And one of them, for example, is they help run ATM networks around the world. So it was a place where one of my old supervisors was retiring to become the deputy CISO, Wayne Peterson who was also working with another deputy CISO, Ron Green, who's now the CISO of MasterCard, both former Secret Service agents. So I knew going in, I was in a comfortable spot and we had some other personnel that were being hired by FIS. This was in the wake of their data breach from a few years ago. They surged their uh, cyber resources quite a bit. So that transition for me was very seamless. I, I also physically didn't have to move. I stayed in Virginia for a couple of years and allowed me to learn the ropes of the private sector. I think one of the other things about that though is is quite frankly like what are the expectations when you leave the government? And for you and I it, I would say that it was weird dichotomy between having left mid career in the secret service. Yeah. There there's not the highest level of expectation yet because you're not a retired uh, you know special agent in charge of the president's detail and you're like running PepsiCo security. But you're also so so um, eager, and you're so uh, fresh, if you will. There's an energy that you bring to the table as a as a private sector person coming out of the government that early, and that that is another thing that helped with my transition. I, I think I was I I was nervous as heck, right? Because we all know what you're giving up when you leave the government. Yeah. But I also had. Um, the support of the people I was working with. Right. And and I think anything I would tell people about transitioning from the government is try as hard as you can to go to somewhat of a familiar place, whether it's the people, the city you grew up in. I know a lot of people that have left the government because they want to go work back in their hometown and be closer to their immediate family. And that's a huge thing that happens. Um, that's helpful. That would be one piece of advice I would give. And, and then another thing I would say about transitioning where some of that's stressful is realize that you're, Beginning a new career, but you're getting a new career with a really, really great bedrock of experience already. Um, using Levi as an example, who was who was in the government about two thirds the less of the time as me, and and knowing how successful Levi is with his great career at Recorded Future, he and I have talked quite a bit. Where you're gonna you're gonna have some bumps in the road, and just know that you have a path that will have maybe many stops. And I don't mean like working at many companies, but don't think when you leave to go to the government, leave the government to go to the private sector, it's going to be the only place you ever are for the rest of your career, which is a little different than somebody who's retired since they are maybe, you know, five, 10 years away from permanently retiring. Whereas, you know, I'm 42, almost 43, and I've got, you know, a lot of gas left in the tank to keep going. And I'm sure you're in the same boat by doing that.
1: Yeah, now's the time, right? And so we, I always tell people, too, like we were at a very interesting time in law enforcement history where, you know, you you really at the time, there was no PhD in cybersecurity or PhD in the information, we were, insight we were getting into the criminals and the adversary and how they operated. Like that was just such a unique time in law enforcement history that unless you were there, it's really challenging to kind of really fully watch it, how it's evolved, right? I mean, and and to be able to take that out, you know, in the private sector, and and for those that are also, you know, our our buddies that are still serving, um, you know, being able to start, I feel like sometimes we can almost do more from where we sit now to help go back and, you know, and and share those perspectives into the companies we work for and consulting or whatever, but also to go back and kind of give the outside in view from the private sector back into the government, because they unless you're in both it's kind of hard to really see both sides of that. So um is there anything that you do with regards to you know the, you know the transition around like um staying connected back to to the old you know groups um you know obviously you're on the board of Flashpoint, so an intelligence company they've been on the show. What what's what's that like now sitting on the other side of of the board on the board advisory board side and Yeah, and
2: sure. So actually one one program note, I I recently left the board there. That it was, you know, it's an advisory board in the in the altruistic sense, right? Not the traditional paid board. But having worked with Josh for several years and and having been a Flashpoint client with my different companies, um, and, and of course you and I both know, you know, half the people. You know, Brian Brown has been a Flashpoint who we know from Verizon days. I mean <clears throat> you working with those great uh, companies and with your opening point, here's what I'll say is that our time was almost like the equivalent of like the Silicon Valley days when the Intel's obviously Intel was in Oregon, but the apples of the world were getting started, right? That to me is kind of where we were. We were in startup mode for cyber intelligence, I feel like. And um, now that we work with places like Flashpoint or places uh, like Recorded Future or, you know, Intel Avenue cause that's, that's look, those are the kinds of people that maybe as businesses are as close to line what we did, right, cyber intelligence. And that gives us, that gives us sort of like that wise sage approach to work with them officially or unofficially to tell them what we went through because they're going through that now as a business. And one of the biggest things is how is going through it as a business different than how we went through it as a government agency. And that's uh, that's valuable information, and that's a valuable relationship to have. So I know that I do a lot of things there with them, or anybody else that is really, really. Um, I, I have to call back to my time in CIS, especially. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: so man, I, I love that. the 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 time in CIS for me was such an amazing time because you know we were you know, all over the world, interacting with law enforcement everywhere, compiling data on so many different cyber actors. Um, but we had such a you like tight-knit group that were all like-minded, kind of wanting the same things. And for those of us that have chosen to go to the private sector, you know, for the most part, we've had that success because we came off the heels of other success. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. For me, it was the foundation of Operation Firewall, you know, that had the intelligence that led to some of the things that we were doing with CS at the time I was there. And we all kind of had that one, two, or three kind of really big international cases that kind of helped us, you know, build our name and learn something unique. What was what was that for you? Which case was it for you that kind of tipped a scale for you to say, all right, I want to make the leap into the private sector. Um, I've learned enough where I was. Um and then can you know so what case was it and, and can you give a little background on it?
2: Yeah, sure. I'll be happy to do that. And and to provide even more background, it was funny how my career came full circle. Uh, where the first person I arrested and the last person I arrested were were in their underwear when I knocked a door down at o' thirty. Which I guess that's what's going to happen if you're if you're in your sleepy dreams and the government comes to arrest you. But um, I had my first case was a, a threat case, and as you know, and, and maybe some of the listeners know, the government investigates pretty much every threat against the president or the vice president if they can locate the person. The Secret Service does that quite a bit. We had a lot of that in Seattle. I had a, uh, an individual who was obsessed with the Vice President Cheney and thought he was playing a personal game of poker with him, and at one point sent a uh, fake mail bomb to the facility that handles all the mail for the White House and the Vice President's residence. And so, knocked his door down in his underwear. March 2013, my last, uh, my last arrest, it was overseas in Western Europe before I left the government. Knocked his door down. In the shower, <laughs> so maybe maybe it was a bit of an evolution, but this um, this specific case was was actually, and we can talk about the Flycracker Flycracker case too, because that was that also talks about the legacy of working in the CIS and what you leave behind when you're not there anymore. But this specific case put all of our work uh, and all of our plans and all of our strategy and rolled it into one. We had worked with our um, private sector partners and our FFRDC partners in CIS for years to develop the leads to then go out and be operators and get uh, arrests and also work with law enforcement. In that case, that was an individual who we've been tracking for several years. We collected all of our information from say Operation Firewall, from this operation, from this operation found the person. I started to track the person. Uh, And then one of the things about all of us, right, in CAS is we all kind of had our niche, like the things we had. We had the people that were uh, really good agents of being undercovers online. We had people that did a lot of the complaints and paper writing. And then we had people that focused only on uh, infrastructure guys versus coding guys versus guys running the boards. And so this person was responsible for running uh, a checking website for credit card checking, and so this individual had tra- had left one of the former Soviet republics to then go to this Western European country with a significant other because she was having plastic surgery. So we tracked them and we used we worked with the um, federal law enforcement agency and the local law enforcement agency of that police agency to help assist us in arresting him. So we had those two agencies, we had the US uh, Secret Service, we had the US Department of Justice, we had the US Department of State. So you 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 see like what we had to work with was multi-state, multinational agencies and we flew over there, we spent about two or three days prepping the operation. And, um, this is, this is, you know, late, late spring, or excuse me, late winter, early spring in Europe. So it's cold and rainy and snowy. And we go into this hotel and the, uh, the, it couldn't have been more scripted. The computer was open. It was unlocked. So any encryption issues, we didn't have to worry about the individual was on the website. We were investigating at that moment with that person's nickname on the screen. So... (laughs) We connected them directly to our investigation because, as you know, we, it's, you have to put hands on the keyboard, as we call it. You have to have an individual tied to the computer actions happening behind the scenes. Yep. We had the person significant other there. We had people speaking that language, the native language of that person there, because we all know that that point, that, like, that sweet moment, that, that happy medium where you have to figure out if this person is going to cooperate. And uh, it all worked. It all worked beautifully. We, we had the, the prosecutors on the line right away and we uh, we ultimately had the individual cooperate. We got all the data. We decrypted all the data that wasn't uh, open. We had that person uh, cooperate for several years. Uh, and that person was accountable for their actions. And that then led to what we all know is the intelligence windfall that comes from one person leading us to five people that then lead us to 10 people that lead us to 15 people. Yeah. And, and from that, was what I would talk about, which is the transitional legacy that we all leave behind, which is all of the cases, right? Anybody that hasn't been in the government doesn't realize, right? When, when Andy leaves the government or when Eric leaves the government, those cases don't follow Eric or Andy. They get handed off to a new case agent. And so we had stuff that was still on, um, on the back burner, But this operation led to the revelation of new information that allowed other operations to flourish. And so when I left the government, by the time I left in September 2013, over the summer of 2013, we were working with our wonderful partners in the District of New Jersey, the U.S. Attorney's Office there, to then um, track another individual who uh, you said uh, was known as Flycracker, uh, an individual that lived in Italy at the time who was actually living in Italy illegally, who was another person from former Soviet Republic that was responsible for other computer intrusion activities against uh, the banking sector in the Northeast. And that, um, that was a, that was a proud moment. So I I went up uh, to help get the complaint, the federal complaint drafted. And then I left the government in September. And at that, at some point, since I left another team picked it up, and the individual ultimately was arrested in Italy and extradited to the United States. And, um, I believe he's in custody now, and so that that was an anybody that looks up Sergey Vovnenko's name is going to know him because of Brian Krebs and him having a basically a, a Twitter battle and an online battle for several years, and I think he might have uh, you know mailed drugs to Krebs's personal house and things like that. So it's uh it all. My last year kind of summed up my first eight years. I guess is a good way to kind of put a, a bow on yeah. it, which was working. Uh, you know, and I'm not sure, you know, Andy, of course you've probably explained sort of like the, the ultimate goals of CIS. I know you've got an RV on the, on the radio show before, but the yeah. goals of CIS are often very strategic and very long-term. And, uh, we know several agencies in the government and several investigators who are okay with that patience, but that's why it's sometimes hard with what we've had to deal with, with the private sector, companies aren't so patient. So, um, that led kind of like my last year of school, right? Like if you look at Secret Service being nine years of cybersecurity school, that was my last year that – allowed me to kind of, you know, walk away I guess with a smile on my face that, you know, there were things were going to be okay. And of course, since then, you know, it's 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 a changing game, uh, but it's also still a vicious circle. We're still dealing with Nigerians, right, with the BEC. <laughs> and the secret service is one of the original uh, federal agencies to investigate Nigerian fraud. So, um, the more things change, the more they stay the same is sometimes what I tell people when it comes to cyber threats.
1: Yeah, man, it's uh it's it's having that platform where you finally in that moment where you go, Yeah, I, I feel good, like I've accomplished something. Um, I'm able to make that transition out. And then when you get to where you're going in the private sector, kind of have that to stand on and then and then have that respect from the folks in the private sector to validate kind of, yeah, you know, what I did was was great. It's unique. And I think what what people don't realize that the work that we're doing at cs it's kind of like a spy game right like you're trying to put together put a face and a name to uh a, a fake name right like yeah. you to put a put a body to a fake name that could be anybody in the world at any point at any time on any machine on the internet right it's like yeah. not an easy thing to do and the cascading effects of that work are are known by the people who do it but really not felt at the level that you know understood or not understood as well by those that don't because it's like we just in the headlines we'll see, well you arrested one person. Well that one person might have been one of the top two, three, four people in a criminal organization that was disrupted, right? So, right. you know, anyway, great, great job on, on your, you know, on your career. Um, I love seeing where you are right now. Um I um I would like to get your take on like you know what do you what do your clients care about the most right now? Like what you know, breaches are constantly happening, it's in the news nonstop, everyone's getting attacked. Like what, what are they what are they coming to you for?
2: What I've learned that's been occurring, especially in the last maybe 12 to 18 months, is the number of people, groups of people, constituents, vendors, whatever, the the perimeters, however you want to call that unit of measurement they're just, there's just so many sides that they're taking it from all sides. So perfect example is an insurance broker client of mine who was attacked via ransomware early this year. They have to worry about the forensics firm. They have to worry about external counsel. They have to worry about their clients. They have to worry about state regulators. So what I, I'm just seeing, there's a growing, there's a growing number of entities applying cyber risk pressure to other entities and you know, the increase in security questionnaires, the increase in security audits, the increase in attestation, you know, show me what your pen test results were. Show me what your risk management uh, structure looks like. Show me, show me, show me. Everybody wants to be shown um, that who they're dealing with, they they are secure to an acceptable level because they of course know, and we know as in, we knew, back when we were working cases, but it's become, I think, more of an open, dirty secret is that third parties or fourth parties or fifth parties are really the attack vectors for the biggest hacks in the world. You and I both know what it caught. Everybody talks about the target HVAC relationship, but that's been, that kind of approach is what hackers do. They find a weakness and the weakness isn't always walking through the front door or directly attacking the company. It's through their third parties. And in in the year of COVID, the reliance on technology and service providers has never been more apparent. And those technology companies and those service providers all physically or logically connect to computer networks that might have the data the bad guy really wants. And so for me, it, it is just you now have to worry about, you know, more than one enemy, I guess is the way to look at it, because you don't know unless your third party tells you what kind of email platform they use, or if they use endpoint technology, or if they use security awareness training. So if they get hacked and those things were all deficient, that could be a, that could be a risk introduced into your environment that now makes you more risky and makes you have to answer to the powers that be. And so that, that would be a, a major observation now is clients are just worried about proving to anybody and everybody who will listen that they are secure and they're taking all the right precautions. And of course, if they are not, what can they do to cure those problems? And that's that you're, what you're seeing ultimately is just an uptick in focusing time, money, and energy on cybersecurity. It's not, has it not dissipated at all.
1: Yeah, no doubt. All right, folks, we have to uh, take, take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from principal head of cybersecurity and risk management solutions at Grubstein Teeple LLP, Eric Rasmussen. You're listening to task force seven radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit
4: facebook.com forward slash voice As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Cynet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Cynet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T
5: In today's interconnected world digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work live and communicate in business staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management.
0: You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at Taskforce7Radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of
1: cybersecurity. We're back with Principal, Head of Cybersecurity and Risk Management Solutions at Grobstein Teeble LLP, Eric Rasmussen. All right, Eric. Look, man, we're going into the holidays. We know that the scams ramp up big time, you know, at the holiday season. What advice can you give folks going to the holidays?
2: I think that we have seen the, much like how we were talking about all these different kind of you know, battle fronts now. Corporations have to face uh, the same thing applies just for the the end user now. With all the different platforms they're using, whether it's a social media platform, a messaging platform, still their email platform, uh, the attackers are are just using every uh, attack. Uh, you know, every inch of the attack surface they can use. We have seen the common gift card holiday scams through email occurring, but we've seen people through their uh, instant messaging platforms uh, like WhatsApp or TikTok or Snapchat or any of the very, very popular ones. People are trying to be uh, sent. They're getting smishing messages there or vishing vishing messages in those platforms. Um, Facebook is still... Uh, a really, really attractive place where everybody knows about the, the Russian disinformation campaigns, but we have uh, had gotten several inquiries about people being um, blackmailed or extorted via Facebook Messenger. And so I, I think what we're learning is that uh, human behavior is uh, is playing it out, right? The human behavior to now move onto online services more and more for COVID or or just general transition onto more technology platforms is leading attackers to use those technology platforms to reach out and touch their victims. And, um, it's become easier because, you know, in our, uh, you know, the beginnings of investigating cyber fraud, a lot of times who people were, what IP address they were using, you didn't get to, um, Hide that as well, and and now because of the monster transition to more private settings, and obviously a lot of the federal government inquiries into the Facebooks and the Googles, and the Twi- and and Twitter, all those platforms now um, have built-in anonymizing technology. So if a person talks to you in Facebook Messenger and wants to extort you, or if a person posts something about you on Twitter, we have a, a a religious institution that's constantly harassed on Twitter and um, it's all Twitter IPs. It's all Twitter metadata. So you're seeing um, it's almost, it's almost like our ability to see fileless malware with PowerShell or people using various Microsoft utilities as a part of the attack. You're using the platform against the victim, so to speak. And that's become a problem we have to deal with. Uh, and that's, that's going to be growing, I think, going into 2021 and uh, certainly more prevalent than ever now because of our, we're, we're probably online. I don't know what the exact hours are, but for all 24 hours of the day, our uptick's is probably 40 or 50% more online behavior, right? Because we're just doing things with our families and friends, our work meetings. So that, that, that gives them more time to try to catch you.
1: Yeah, definitely more opportunistic uh, right now during the pandemic. Um, we well, you, you touched on a little bit of a, you know your twenty twenty one projection, but any any other projections you think things would be thinking about going into twenty one?
2: I, I still think that email uh, phishing will become or remain the primary attack vector, primary entry point for for all network intrusions, uh, nation state network intrusions, and corporate network intrusions that might be akin to the business email compromise. I have seen uh, mostly the traditional Microsoft 365 password reset ones, but we're we're seeing a lot of a lot of uh, social engineering still occurring where you might not have a malicious link, or you might not have a malicious URL, but you have you get the user to elicit, uh, or I should say, you should get the attacker to elicit information from the user that can be then used to um, you know steal money via wire fraud or something like that. Perfect example is we think about business email compromise having a lot of problems with, you know, dirty PDFs or things like that, but attackers are learning that there's a lot of anti-phishing malware, excuse me, a lot of anti-phishing or anti-malware tools out there that are protecting email environments. So now they're just, you know, good old fashioned, just asking or, or letting the user know that wire instructions are changing and there's no, there's no attachment. It's just in the body of the email. So the scanning that you can do doesn't really highlight that as a threat. And so it's a balance right it's a balance it's it's going to high-tech when they go high-tech going to low-tech when we stay high-tech going to low-tech when they go and so you know the high-tech low-tech battle is is it's ever-changing in terms of the strategies on both sides
1: well, Matt, well Eric it's always a pleasure to catch up brother we need to do it uh, more frequently um I hope you and your families have a great holiday season and I'll catch back up with you uh, in January um but I appreciate you coming on the show
2: Absolutely. Thank you. And, uh, and happy holidays to you as well.
1: All right, brother. All right, folks. It's time for us to bounce up on out of here. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.